The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Wednesday, everybody. We're live from the city of London, the city of Westminster and, of course, Toulouse. And these are your headlines. 11th hour Brexit talks dragging on into the night as British and European negotiators appear to edge closer to an agreement despite key sticking points. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam is forced to deliver her policy address via video link after anti-government lawmakers disrupt the legislative session. The IMF blames the U.S.-China trade war after it slashes 2019 global growth forecast to its lowest level since the financial crisis. A tale of two banks, J.P. Morgan shares rally after the lender smashes profit estimates. But Goldman Sachs misses forecasts as it endures heavy losses from investments in WeWork and Uber. Very good morning to everyone. Let's get straight into the corporate earnings season. Lots going on on both sides of the Atlantic. Very interesting, the backdrop to numbers out from the Swiss pharmaceutical group Roche. Uh, Of course, there have been concerns that Swiss pharma will be dragged into trade wars and tariff increases on the back of uh, transatlantic uh, issues surrounding Boeing and Airbus, of all things, and what have you. But uh, I can tell you the shares have had a terrific run to the upside uh, as of late. And actually, the shares trading on 14.74 times forward, not the most expensive in the sector as well. The 52-week range, 229 to 291. And they are right, as you can see, at the top of the trading range. So are the numbers good enough? Well, let me just tell you what the company itself is saying. Roche reports very strong sales growth in the first nine months of 2019. They have raised their outlook. Uh, That is what the investors who are long this stock, I guess, wanted to hear. They've raised their outlook. Um, The first nine months of 2019, group sales rose 10% to, uh, I think it was 46.1 billion Swiss francs. Uh, Sales in the pharmaceuticals division increased by 12% to 36.6 billion as well. Uh, What else can I tell you? The core earnings per share uh, are targeted to broadly grow in line with sales at constant exchange rates, expects further increase in the dividend in Swiss francs. So you've got an upgraded outlook. You've got strong sales in the key pharmaceuticals division. You've got an increased divvy as well. So a very positive set of statements that we're getting so far from the numbers. Of course, the analysts and everyone needs to go into a little bit more detail on this one. Uh, what have they got to say about the UK? They said Roche is, uh, says the regulatory review of the transaction. This is a deal they're doing. Uh, for a company called Spark, closing of the Spark transaction expected at the end of the year. Uh, regulatory authority process is uh, expecting to be done by the end of the year. So not a huge timescale on that. And one more for you. Uh, expect sales growth in the high single-digit range. High single-digit range as well. So positive stuff coming out from Roche. Good morning to you. How are Good you? Good morning. Well, You've thank had you. a very, very bad throat last few days. So are you I feeling have. any better? <laughs> a little bit better. Thank you. Right, nice but, to uh, see you. Good to be back because uh, third quarter earnings uh, in the States, very much a huge focus as well as a Brexit development. So back for all the important stuff and what we've got on US markets, a uh, strong rally taking place across the board. Bank earnings are a fairly key component of some of the rally that you saw, particularly after the likes of JP Morgan, City Wells Fargo boosted some sentiment around bank earnings. 
Goldman Sachs, a bit of an outlier, but uh, the markets were focused around those earnings from three of the major ones. All at the same time, we've had a downgrade to IMF growth forecast for the year. So still a little bit of a hit to sentiment around the macroeconomic side as investors pour over the devil in the detail around earnings. Also just worth noting what we saw in session, investors a little bit concerned around the progress around trade. And what we've had, some reports suggesting that China could struggle to buy the $50 billion worth of U.S. farm goods that has been slated in that first phase of a trade deal unless there is a removal of tariffs by the Chinese, which would then force a reciprocal removal of tariffs from the U.S. So you can see the difficulty in that trade situation. But in session, uh, investors very much focused on the stock-specific news. Pinterest was worth noting too. One of the big-name tech stocks that listed on the market recently with the expiration, the lock-up period for investors expiring, you did see huge volume in that stock, nine times the 30-day average. So uh, second-largest volume day ever that we've seen in that particular stock. And there was a, a big move south in Pinterest shares. So what you saw on the boards, a couple of gainers, a couple of losers, healthcare, real standout semis also closing at a new record in session, uh, which is underpinning some of those uh, gains that you saw stateside. The uh, Brexit story, very much a significant factor too for confidence as investors uh, continue to closely watch the narrative about whether there could be a deal forthcoming. And that's lifted some of the Asian markets again in session. You can see Japanese stocks trading higher, 1.3%. Don't forget if you see the removal of Brexit, that will be one huge layer of sentiment for investors investors removed and that has been a supportive factor for the Japanese yen and if you think about strength in the Japanese yen as a safe haven it is uh, somewhat of a headwind to the Japanese stock market so it is one to watch on some fortunes around Brexit even though it seems far removed from the Tokyo stock market uh, 1.2 percent higher for Australian shares opening calls here in Europe uh, let's take a look and see how we stand we are weaker across the board a bit of headline risk today investors still watching sterling trades and the FTSE will be the one to watch as we have seen the uh, trade just come up a little bit from that 128 handle that we saw on some of the initial optimism that may be in this 11th hour trade uh, coming up to the European summit and coming up to uh, crucial talks that we need to have uh, some movement in pound. That could have an instrumental impact on what FTSE does so far, 28 to the downside. But uh, Steve, we're watching the wires closely, aren't we? Yes, we are. Uh, talks between the UK and the EU over a potential Brexit deal stretch late into the night in Brussels. Some members of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Conservative Party, though, have expressed public doubts about the emerging deal, uh, which could face a parliamentary vote as soon as this weekend. Well, as Karen mentioned, the pound rallying hard in session yesterday. Now, 127.57 this week, one session old, 1% higher as well. So, Willem, so many aspects, got to get it over the line in Brussels. Uh, will the detail take to the new year? And what about the ERG? And what about Arlene Foster? And, of course, what about the 21? And one interesting fact about the 21 who lost the whip, of course, is that Sam Jimmy has left to go to the Liberal Democrats. But I, really, I understand now that Amber Rudd's gone in as a replacement for Sam Jimmy. So you've still got dissenters in the Tory party. Yeah, you do, including Owen Patterson, who told the Sun newspaper, he's a former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, that he thought that any deal that involved any kind of border in the RFC would be, quote, unacceptable. You've got other members of the hardline faction inside the Conservative Party saying they are prepared potentially to support what they call a tolerable deal. But of course, it's going to be a real challenge for Boris Johnson if he does manage to get the Europeans to sign up to something in the next 24 hours ahead of that EU Council summit in Brussels Thursday, Friday, to then get that deal through the House of Commons with the majority on Saturday because he doesn't have a majority that he controlled. 
And when you talk about the DUP, they met with the Prime Minister and his advisors yesterday evening. They came out saying they would do whatever is best for the Union. That's a reference to the United Kingdom, of which Northern Ireland is a part. And then, of course, you had members of that hardline faction coming out of a meeting again with the Prime Minister, seemingly most of them a lot more optimistic. It's going to be really, really, really uncertain right down till whenever there is a vote on Saturday. And yet we don't even know, Stephen. This is also critical for people watching this, trying to understand the timeline over the next few days. We won't know till tonight whether there will be that session on Saturday. And of course, that will hinge on whether the negotiators, the lawyers involved in the back and forth in Brussels have managed to get a legal text completed in time. That's something, of course, the Europeans have concerns about. In terms of the rest of the day here in London, we'll see Boris Johnson meeting with his cabinet mid-afternoon, briefing them on the latest updates. And then after that meeting with the entirety of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, at least what's left of it, the 1922 committee, to give them an update on how things are proceeding ahead of what could be that very crucial vote on Saturday. One of the big conversations in this newsroom has been whether de jure, uh, as in de jure, J-U-R-E, is Latin or French. Because, of course, the difference between de jure and de facto is something that everyone's pouring over at the moment. Because, of course, this is the, the, the fudge that could be the, the, the customs compromise as well, where actually, in fact, the um, Northern Irish um, part of the UK is in a UK customs territory, but in effect uh, is using EU customs rules. This is incredible tautology, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be one of the challenges that these lawyers in Brussels are facing. And as a 15 years of Latin veteran, I have to tell you, it's definitely old French because there's no letter J in the Latin alphabet. It's going to be one of those challenges, though, trying to square the circle. And this is something, conversations I've had with people involved in those negotiations on the British side, stretching back well over a year. Ultimately, they said this is always going to come down to very clever legal language to try and thread that incredibly small hole in a very small needle that will keep both sides happy, but also make this legally operable. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that. Do you know, I didn't even know there was no J in the Latin language. And actually, I did do Latin O-level right. back in 1986. Thank you, Villain. What do you, think, what do you, you think social media makes of this? I mean, two I Latin statements. Care? No, I mean, if you think about how this is sold to the public. Or <laughs> well, if, if you think about the way Brexit has been positioned in the media yeah. anyway, yeah. and then on social media, this is a very difficult concept yet again. I like what a Latin concept, two different Latin concepts for the broader public to try and digest at a time when they're coming up with uh, this whole end game around Brexit. They're mm. going to have a field day with this, aren't they? Yes, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I care what social media thinks of this. Actually. Well, I care the about the legality of it, really. But the influencing. I mean, with all due respect to social media, and, and you know, like, I'm, I'm a participant on it as well. We don't engage in deep legalistic conversations on social media, and this is a deep legalistic but, but this conversation. This is my point. So how does that get digested? Because it has a huge ability to influence populations. They're not getting some of their news from genuine mm. news sites anymore. So I wonder how they take this and whether Boris can sell the concept. Well, the one thing that Mr. Johns, I mean, the there was a brilliant interview. View. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll shout out where I hear it on Radio 5 Live with Emma Barnett, who is a brilliant t uh, radio presenter, with Amber Rudd, who is a government minister who left um, Mr. Johnson's government because he did not feel that um, they were working hard enough towards a deal. She thought that the de facto cabinet position was, um, was uh, for no deal. And, and Mrs. Rudd, who's now joined the 21, as I mentioned before, um, basically was saying there is a lot, she thought actually, and let's bring another actor in, there was a huge amount of sexism uh, in the fact that people would let Boris Johnson get a deal, but that they wouldn't let Mrs. May get a deal. In fact, the difference between the two is very, very 
hard to see as well. And I, I thought I, was, I had a lot of sympathy for what Mrs. Rudd had to say uh, in that interview as well. And, and actually just talking about Mr. Johnson and the, perhaps the clubability of the Conservative Party, i.e. he can get deals with the boys in the back room, whereas actually Mrs. May was looked on a different way. <laughs> that is fascinating, isn't it? It isn't it? To I thought this, that was just another interesting aspect. Well, to arrive at this point very, very quickly, you have to rely on a lot of the de devil in detail that's been done before. And of course, that is Theresa May's work that yeah. it comes into the equation. She but was brilliant on detail. Will she receive I, any credit for that? I hope so, mm. if there is a deal. If there is a deal. Um, but I, I think the thing about Mrs May is, and having met her on a couple of occasions, uh, she was she was clearly very good on detail and very mm. you know, good at reading stuff and digesting facts. Did she build consensus? And I think that's perhaps one of the biggest criticisms of Mrs May, that she couldn't build consensus. Right. I've got to say, if we don't get a deal, you've got to say there's a lot of room for the pound to fall now from how quickly we've moved. Yes, 127 plus. Mm. OK, let's move uh, to the EU side of things. EU leaders say they will work until the last minute to secure a Brexit deal. Charlotte is in Toulouse, where the French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Angela Merkel will lead a joint cabinet meeting. Joint cabinet meeting. A day ahead of that crucial EU summit. Wow, what does that mean when they have a joint cabinet meeting, Charlotte? Good morning to you. Good morning. Well, these kind of meetings have been going on since about 2003, this kind of format, and they do it once or twice a year. But of course, the timing of this one is particularly crucial with this EU summit tomorrow uh, in Brussels. So, of course, they say on the, on, on the program that they will talk about defence, they will talk about industrial policy, but we know that the harder conversation really will be about Brexit. And so we're here in Toulouse, as you can see the town hall behind me, with the flags of both countries as, as this town is, is ready to receive both leaders that arrive at around lunchtime. That we first visit the Airbus factory, which is here in Toulouse, the HQ, as seen as a great example of a success of a cooperation between the two countries, before they have a bilateral in the afternoon and then the joint cabinet meeting, and finally a dinner where CEOs are expected to attend, as well as Mrs. von der Leyen, the incoming Commission president. And so this is the latest meeting in a series of meetings that President Macron has been holding. Uh, they already met with Mrs. Merkel on Sunday night when they talked about Brexit. He also holds Hosted Mrs. Van der Leyen in Paris, and then Mr. Tusk that same day. Yesterday he spoke on the phone with Boris Johnson, and today this meeting again with Mrs. Merkel. So a lot of conversations behind the scenes on Brexit. As you will remember, Mr. Macron and Mrs. Merkel have not always agreed on the Brexit uh, topic. Mr. Macron was not in favour of an extension for the UK back in April, and Mrs. Merkel was in favour of a longer extension. They came to a compromise to a short extension. Um, now we will see that the French authorities always said we will grant another extension only if there's a substantial difference uh, to, to grant this new extension. It would be an election, a referendum or a new proposal, a new workable proposal on the table. So now all eyes are on the Barnier team uh, to see if this proposal that came from the UK is something that is workable ahead, of course, of this crucial summit starting tomorrow. Charlotte, thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll check with you a little bit later on the show ahead. Anti-government lawmakers interrupt the latest policy address from Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam. More right after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for a very own podcast. I should make it now, aren't we, Steve? Head to cmc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. 
East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam has been forced to deliver her policy address by video after anti-government lawmakers in the Legislative Council interrupted the speech twice. Let's get out to Emily for more in Hong Kong. Emily, I was uh, fascinated by this comment that uh, the Hong Kong people's rational and pragmatic approach will be sure that the rainbow will emerge after the storm. It sounds like Carrie Lam might be chasing rainbows at this point, given the, the level of dissent uh, across in the territory. Yeah, she's talking about rainbows and also blue skies uh, because sky blue was the color of her policy address. Uh, that is, of course, the cover of the pamphlet of the policy address, which she was talking about yesterday. And she's hoping that blue skies will return and that Hong Kong can start anew. Uh, she started out her uh, policy address. It was at about 12.15 Hong Kong time when it was starting to play. Uh, this is the pre-recorded address after uh, in the legislative council chamber. It had to be aborted due to some protests by the pan-democrats. Uh, but she started by talking about four months of unprecedented protest in Hong Kong, uh, and she, but she decided to go ahead and present the policy address as planned. Although the fact that it is in a pre-recorded message, that is unprecedented. Uh, she had 50 consultations in order to come up with the, uh, the policies and something like 220 initiatives uh, that were read out. The whole policy address lasted for 50 minutes, uh, during which she promised more affordable housing for citizens of Hong Kong. Uh, she said that housing is the toughest livelihood issue facing the society. It is also a source of public grievance, and she has never taken this matter lightly. She went on to say that she has set a clear objective that every Hong Kong citizen and his family will no longer have to be troubled or be preoccupied with the housing problem, and that they will have to be able to own their own home in Hong Kong, a city in which we all share. So a very big promise there by the chief executive that every Hong Kong citizen or every Hong Kong family can own their own home. Uh, protests have slowed government plans, she says, to increase land supply. Um, uh, in addition to the housing measures, uh, increasing land supply, she also was talking about the Hong Kong economy, where she expects a Q3 technical recession and in the short term on the labor market for there to be some layoff pressure. Protests have damaged Hong Kong's image and reputation, but she says that the Hong Kong can ride out the storm and move on. Uh, she wants to reverse the current pessimism in the city, and she expects, of course, as uh, Karen indicated, a rainbow after the storm. Now, uh, the, the this pre-recorded taped uh, message was uh, one of the contingency measures uh, ahead of uh, going into today's uh, policy address. It was expected to be read in the Legislative Council chambers at 11 o'clock this morning, so delayed by an hour and 15 minutes. Now, that's after pan-democratic lawmakers, uh, of course, they are present in the Legislative Council chamber. What they did was they shined a light uh, up at the front of the chamber in her face uh, with their slogan, and that is, what that means is five demands, not one less. And they were also holding up placards uh, with her face on it 
and her hands bloodied. On the top of the picture there, Mdai Sokal, Kuyet Bat Hall, again, the big slogan that all the protesters have been chanting in Hong Kong for the past 19 weeks. Now, this all has to do with that extradition bill uh, that brought on the social unrest and the, the political upheaval uh, in the past four months all through the summer here. Uh, the demands for the withdrawal of the bill that was expected to happen today after the reading of the policy address in the Legislative Council. Today was the first council meeting after the July 1st ransacking of the Legislative Council chambers. Uh, They had to do reconstruction and repair works, and today was the first session of the new term. And uh, basically, it it didn't happen as planned, and there was supposed to be the official withdrawal of the extradition bill after the reading of the policy address, but because that did not happen, we did not have that official withdrawal today. Uh, So, of course, uh, it was... uh, Remains to be seen now how the market is uh, digesting the latest policy address. If you can just pull up the markets here, we are in the afternoon session. Uh, in the morning session, we had a very flat day. Uh, but back in the positive column, the market is traded up about 110 points. It will be interesting to see how the Hong Kong property stocks are reacting given such a large focus of the policy address and on the housing issue. Karen. Emily, thank you very much for running us through the latest there out of Hong Kong. In other news, U.S. members of Congress have showed their support for anti-government protesters in Hong Kong, passing three pieces of legislation related to the Chinese territory. One of the bills requires the U.S. Secretary of State to check every year that Hong Kong remains autonomous in exchange for the special treatment of its financial sector. The action has received a cruel reception in China. The country's foreign ministry said the legislation will damage relations between the two countries and urged U.S. lawmakers to stop interfering. The IMF has cut its global growth forecast for 2019 to the lowest level since the financial crisis, citing ongoing trade tensions between the US and China. The fund expects GDP to grow 3% this year, down from its July forecast of 3.2%. Growth is expected to pick up in 2020, but the IMF says risks remain skewed to the downside. Well, speaking to CNBC, the uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink painted a more optimistic view of the global economy. U.S. growth is at least 2%. China growth is somewhere between 5.8 and 6.2. Um, despite we're paying so much attention to the political and geopolitical issues that we're losing sight that the world still is moving forward. Um, and so I think that's one of the big issues that's going on now. It's not great, but it's not as bad as we feel every morning we wake up. Yeah. Uncertainty is set to remain despite some progress in U.S.-China trade talks, according to some Fed policymakers. San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly says she believes the economy and policy accommodation are, quote, in a good place. However, she cautioned uncertainty continues to weigh on businesses, despite some positive movement in trade talks and Brexit. Meanwhile, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard echoed Daly's views on uncertainty, but said he believed policy might be, quote, too restrictive amid weak inflation and slowing growth. BlackRock's uh, Larry Fink told CNBC he doesn't think negative rates support greater economic activity. I don't believe negative rates and persistence negative rates translates into more economic activity. It may translate into a depressive element to the economy, especially in Europe and Japan, where 82% of savings is in a bank account. So they're, they're not enjoying the success that Americans do with low or negative interest rates.
just wanted to start with the trade numbers, the IMF numbers and, and the impact from trade, because we've got a growth number that's been taken down from 3.8% to 3%, and that's been a hit that you've seen from the trade wars that have emerged. But the IMF also pointing out without the intervention of central banks, you could have seen a further 0.5% weaker. And I think that's amazing. If you talk about a growth rate closer to 4%, that could have been closer to 2.5% because of the trade impact with that central bank intervention. It sort of flies in the face of what some of the commentators have been saying around the set, that trade wars don't matter. We've seen a, a number of people say, oh, well, it's just, you know, one of those things, no real uh, overall economic impacts, just slight at the margins. Mm. I dare say that's incorrect when you look at the impact on global growth now. Look, I mean, there are a couple of things here anyway, that China is slowing down. Emerging market growth has been slowing for quite a while as well. So there is a natural mm -hmm. slowdown in the pace of global growth if we are seeing very subdued Western economies. It's the emerging countries that have provided the X factor for the growth story. So that's the first point I'll say. There is a natural slowdown in EM anyway. The second point I thought was very interesting that I was reading from um, this chief economist of the World Bank, and she was making out the point that there's not a lot of room for central banks to move from here. Well, that is a combined narrative now. We heard it from Mr. Fink. We've heard it previously from other central bankers as well. But I thought the point was that subdued growth was, and um, from Mrs. Uh, Gopinath, rising trade barriers, elevated uncertainty surrounding trade and geopolitics, idiosyncratic factors causing macroeconomic strain in several market economies, including structural factors. Well, all of this can be addressed. So actually, but they're putting the emphasis once again on governments to go forth, sort out your issues with each other and create structural reforms. Yes, yeah, so we'll just hang our hat on, on that one. We'll wait for it, won't we, for the fiscal reform and structural reform that we're seeing in economies. But I would make a point, uh, the flagging up of the IMF around emerging markets, very interesting as we look for black swans, as I cite Turkey, Argentina, Iran, Mexico, Brazil and Russia in that outlook statement. So maybe the ones to watch. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.